Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley with our president and CEO, Ron Howergan. Uh, Ron, how are you, sir? I am doing great. I hope you are as well. I am doing well because I don't live in Baltimore or Kansas City or San Francisco. And so I am one of the many new, well, I've been a Lions fan for a while now, but I am, we are now joined by, I think, the majority of America rooting for the underdog right now, which is the Detroit Lions uh, in the NFC Championship this weekend. Yeah, well, it's because, you know, something happened this weekend that has not happened in my lifetime. Yep. And that's the Lions have won two playoff games in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, because the last time that happened was 1957. Yep. And so, yes, uh, I'm, in, I'm in good shape as well for that. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited because, you know, for I think our listeners know I live in northern Michigan, but it's not always that every weekend we have the Lions on TV because there are a lot of Green Bay fans up here. So they actually have a lot of Green Bay um, televised games instead of the Lions. But now that they're in the uh, playoffs, I get to see all of them because they're all national yep. games. So yep. I'm excited to see the Lions take on San Francisco. Uh, I did see a price in the Detroit News for some of the tickets and flights, and I will not be going. Um, <laughs> as much as, as well as, uh, you know, as well as we do at Fulcrum Run, I, I don't make quite enough money to justify going to that game. But uh, <laughs> you, I, you I, and me both, brother. I, I will watch it both. from the comfort of my living room with a beer and on my couch. So absolutely. All right. Uh, this isn't a sports podcast. It's a healthcare podcast, believe it or not. Uh, so let's talk healthcare. And the thing we're talking about today is something that I think patients hate and providers hate. And that is, of course, prior authorizations. Uh, Ron, we have talked at length about prior authorizations uh, over the past year, in particular with the story of, of Dr. Dan Hurley, uh, because it was a, um, a prior authorization that ended up getting denied that uh, we, we, I think you know, you can't say it's uh, it's it's a necessarily you know a one to one coincidence or a one to one consequence, but I I think it is reasonable to say that that uh, in, in a sense cost him his life because he was not able to get um, uh, perhaps the appropriate cancer treatment he needed. So one of the things that has happened a lot lately is um, we've seen a lot of lawsuits against the payers for these excessive uh, denials uh, for for care that should be covered. And recently, the uh, Biden administration un- under the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has a, issued a new final rule that goes after prior authorization. So I, I want, can you give us a little bit of a background at what this does and what kind of plans it affects? Yeah, so it's, it's basically a rule that requires um, payers, health insurers, um, who are participating in Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, or the what they'll call the Obamacare exchanges. So those three products, it requires that those payers must respond to an expedited prior authorization request. This is something that's urgent in nature. They have to respond within 72 hours to those and a standard request within seven calendar days. So 72 hours or a week, they've got to respond to that request for prior authorization. They can't just sort of let it linger there. It also has some other rules around it saying that if they're going to deny something, they have to include the specific reason for the denial. Um, and then they're also going to have to publicly report um, some prior auth metrics, you know, how many times they're denying things, what their turnaround time is, et cetera. 
Um, so that's roughly what the law does. And it, like I said, it helps the Medicare Advantage folks, Medicaid, and then those people that are covered by one of the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Let me ask you something that may be a distinction without a difference. And that is that you said uh, that the, the health insurance that participate in Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, or the exchange plans, does that mean all of the products that they offer, if they sell one of those, fall under this new rule? Or is that only the products that you just listed there? No, it's only those products. Okay. And part of that has to do with, um, you know, the way the Biden administration did this, they can only touch those products because those products are right. funded by the federal government through CMS. Um, roughly half of the country, about 153 million people, are covered by either private or employer-sponsored health insurance plans. Mm -hmm. None of this applies to them. Um, and it's because that they, they really can't forcibly apply that without actual legislation that, that touches those. So, you know, if you're, if you're a Medicare Advantage plan, if you're Medicaid, if you're under the exchanges, hey, th this, this helps you. For the rest of the other half of the country, it doesn't do a thing. Well, and at least at the bare minimum, we could say this, that you're right, that this is a success for some of the people that are on those plans, because there are quite a few Americans on those plans. Sure. Um, let's take a step back then, because since it doesn't help those that are on self-funded or, uh, you know, employer-based insurance, basically, mm -hmm. uh, either self-funded or fully insured, who then has the ability to regulate those plans and say you need to do prior authorizations within 72 hours, like the CMS rule? Well, um, legis the legislature could do it for the self-insured. They'd have okay. to pass legislation that um, that either attaches to the ERISA legislation, which is where they're funded under, um, or standalone. Um, they could also apply that to fully insured, but they've got to be careful they don't step on states' toes. Um, and individual states could do it for fully insured. Um, so it would either be state and or federal legislation um, rather than sort of regulation. Mm -hmm. There's a second part of this rule here, and it, this now we're getting really into the weeds with it, but I, I'll ask you about it anyway. And, and that has to do with the electronic prior authorization measure uh, for clinicians that are under the merit-based incentive payment system. Uh, what, what is that? First of all, what is that merit-based incentive payment system? Is this one of those situations where Medicare is trying to get away from fee-for-service? Yeah, yeah. It's it's it has to do with folks who are under the ACOs, Affordable Care or um, Accountable Care Organizations, et cetera, under Medicare, um, and it's a pretty technical part of the bill on yep. what they have to do electronically through there. Um, the other thing, though, to, the other thing to keep in mind, and, and this really needs to be pointed out. Um, there are two other concerns I have for what they're doing here. Sure. And, and don't get me wrong. This will be a lot like the, the discussion we had on what they, you know, they were trying to do to bring down pharmacy costs. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's not, it's a good step in the right direction, but it's a baby yeah. step. Yeah. And let's not overestimate what it'll do. The two concerns I have is, first of all, they have to respond within 72 hours or seven calendar days. It doesn't say they have to make a determination. They have to respond. Okay. So technically speaking, if you have an expedited, let's take, Let's take Dr. Hurley's situation, okay? Mm -hmm. What his doctor was saying is, I need this PET scan because I need a baseline number so I can tell whether the treatment I'm giving him is helping or hurting. And I need it right away because we need to start him on this chemo right away, okay? Well, the response could be, um, we would like more information. Could you please answer the following 37-page form? That's a response. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. that physician fills out the 37-page form and sends it back in, they have another 72 hours. Okay. Right. Or we haven't seen the chart notes for this yet. Please send those to us. 
That's a response. So it doesn't mean they give a decision or determination. It means that they just respond. Okay, so that's one concern that I have. Mm -hmm. And doctors all over the place will argue about, hey, I send this in and then they give me back 12 more questions and I send that in and then they, oh, we lost your, you know, your response to that, that kind of stuff. The other is I'm a little worried about enforcement. What's going to happen and who's going to enforce it and what's the penalty when it's at hour 73 and I don't have a response? We've yeah. got a number of situations. The No Surprises Act is a perfect one where the federal government has just chosen not to enforce it. Um, so who's there? Who's the police officer, so to speak? How bad is the ticket? Um, because without enforcement, it really doesn't even matter what these rules are. So, again, it's a good step in the right direction. I, I like what they're trying to do, but let's not pretend that this is going to fix this issue or even really have that much of a material impact on it. You, you know, it's funny you mentioned the enforcement mechanism. We talked about that last week in the state of Pennsylvania where they have that new website where you can appeal your denied claims. We asked the same question. Mm -hmm. What is the enforcement right. mechanism for that particular website and that system? And we've heard from the Biden administration and, and Secretary Javier Becerra talk about how many warnings they sent out over not just right. the No Surprises Act, but the Hospital Price Transparency Act and, and some of those as well right. that they have just not done well at enforcing both, you know, in part of it, I'll give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that at least for hospital price transparency, they're just not, they're not equipped to do it in the way they should. But, you know, for no surprises, it's been blatantly obvious that yeah. they've just decided not to enforce it. Um, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, you know, it's obvious we're in election year. This is yep. a nice election year thing to do. And, and, and again, it's going to help some people. So I don't want to, but but it really is almost Band-Aids on bullet wounds. Um, I also thought it was interesting that here's a, a regulation and CMS putting out this regulation, and immediately there was a joint statement by several senators and representatives going, yeah, this is great, which I'm thinking, well, that's fantastic. You guys didn't pass legislation. This is yeah. a regulation. And talk about finding a parade and jumping in front of it, mm -hmm. you know, Um if, if these guys really were worried about that, then let's get to work and pass some really meaningful um, legislation, mm -hmm. including enforcement. I mean, do something like OSHA does with, with workplace safety and put some teeth to it. But no, we really don't want to do that. We just want to pretend like we're fixing the issue. And, and you're referring to uh, Larry Bushin, a Republican of Indiana, Mike Kelly, Republican of Pennsylvania, yeah. Susan Dilbane from Democrat of Washington, uh, Amy Barra, Democrat of California, plus several other sen senators. Right. And you know what I notice about that list of names too, Ron, is that none of them are the ones that we would typically point to as saying, hey, they're talking about health care in Congress. Because that's usually Jan Chankowski and Bernie Sanders, right. and occasionally Rand Paul, depending on you know right. what side of the political spectrum you're on. But it's none of these people are, are big health care um, hawks in the, in the Congress right now. No, none of them are big healthcare um, in Congress right now. It's not who you would think is the normal cast of characters uh, that take a pretty hardcore healthcare position. And several of them are probably in a iffy political position in the next election. So, um, I, you know, again, I could see them doing the whole let's find a parade and get in front of it and see if I can yeah. use this as a soundbite on how I, you know, protected patients against evil insurance companies. Um, I also think the insurance companies know that this is a pretty minor inconvenience, which is why I don't think they really rallied against it. Um, without much enforcement, 
Medicare and Medicaid tend to have less of this problem anyway. Um, I think the payers view this as a, you know, this is a parking ticket rather than a felony. And, and I, I had the same thought only because there didn't seem to be any statements or anything put out by the insurance lobbies uh, that, that represent some of the, the interests of, of the big insurance groups in, in Washington. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing as to, to recap, it doesn't apply to, um, private employer sponsored insurance, about 153 million it doesn't apply to veterans affairs plans. Uh, it only applies to Medicare, Medicaid, uh, chip and Obamacare plans. But, you know, like you said, step in the right direction, but not a big step. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Run really quickly before we go. We have talked a lot with our clients about what is going on with Medicare, and I know we talked about it last week. I just want to see if you could give us a little bit of an update before we go today uh, to, to see if there's any movement in that direction, what physicians should be planning on at this point, if they're holding claims for Medicare, should they release them? Yeah, so the only movement is is sort of disappointing no movement. One of the big chances that we had to potentially get rid of some or all of the Medicare cut, the 3.37% cut in the conversion factor, was if they could attach it to the legislation to keep the government running. Um, and it didn't get attached there. Um, you know, that spending or continuing resolution doesn't have anything in here about that uh, getting rid of that Medicare cut. That's unfortunate because that was probably our best avenue to get something happening very quickly. So now, um, if they're going to get rid of some or all of it, it sort of almost has to be standalone legislation. That's going to be problematic in this Congress, um, at, both in the House and in the Senate. So um, if I were in Vegas right now and I had to bet money, I would probably bet better than 50% odds that the whole cut stays. I hope I'm wrong. I hope Congress pulls their collective heads out of their collective rear ends and stops punishing doctors. Um, but I'm, I'm worried that this one's going to stick. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's really, it's really problematic when you realize that that means that's two cuts in a row. Um, the last one was a point and a half or so. So they've cut physician reimbursement by you know, what, five, little over 5% in the last two years when we've been facing horrible inflation. It's just hard to wrap your head around why that would be occurring. Um, and eventually we're going to, we're going to pay for it. So to answer your question, if I were a medical practice right now, I'm not sure I would hold Medicare claims. I'd go ahead and submit them because I, I, I just don't think they're going to, they're going to, take away this cut and that's really unfortunate well uh, i i hope uh, even if you were a betting man and you had money down and i'd still hope you'd be wrong too <laughs> just for the sake you of our, both. Our, our clients right now because that's that's a repeat question that's been coming up and i'm sure yep. it has been for your clients as well yep well ron we're just about out of time uh thanks again for sitting down with me and having a conversation about prior authorizations today uh you're very welcome enjoyed it Miss an episode of the Flatlining Podcast? Well, now you can read a recap. Just go to flatlining.net and look right there on the homepage every Monday for a written recap on last week's episode. <laughs>